I'm creative business coach Anastasia Williams, and you are listening to Making Magic, a podcast for fiber artists, makers, and creatives who are looking to craft a business with intention. Hi there, welcome to episode 16. You're going to have to forgive me for my intro and outro today because I have laryngitis and you may also hear a cat. I'm sitting in a parking lot currently outside of an emergency vet um, because I have a cat who's quite sick and no surrounding vets have appointments for the next week. So we have to do this. Anyway, neither here nor there. But today um, on this episode, I have kind of a treat. I am interviewing Hannah Thyssen. She is a knitwear designer. She is an author of two books, Slow Knitting and Slow Knitting Seasonally. She has her hand in so many areas of the fiber arts industry and has such a decorated resume. Um, and so it's my privilege to be able to interview her and talk to her about her process and get some of her thoughts and opinions, especially on marketing yourself in today's industry, knowing what she knows. And I, it was a really long interview. We knew it would be because she has such expansive experience, but I'm going to split it up into two parts. So today's is going to be the longer part. It goes probably for about 45 minutes after I'm done yakking here. And then the next one will be next week. So it'll just be a continuation. And that one is roughly around 40 minutes. We also had to pause for a second because of some bird rescue stuff. But anyway, so this is all going to just pretty much be a fun series. And um, I, I guess we'll just we'll just hop right in. Tell me how you got started in fiber arts at all. <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, I guess I could say that I started when I learned, right. Um, in the sense that I first learned when I was a kid, I think a lot of people learn when they're kids, but in terms of a career, um, you know, I, I kind of was knitting while I was, I learned when I was eight and then I took it to middle school and my teachers pretty much told me that I couldn't have it in class. And so I stopped doing it because people thought I was weird. And it was kind of something I only did at home for a long time. And then we moved to Iowa um, my senior year of high school. And then for my first year of college, I went to Drake University in Des Moines. And Iowa is really cold in a way that only Midwesterners will understand. Because um, I, I feel like there's like Northeastern cold and there's like out in Montana cold and there's... Um, you know, just snow cold. And then there's cold that is Midwestern cold, which is wind that travels to you with a bite attached. You know, its goal is to make you as miserable as possible. And this is the, um, this is the ideal environment for staying inside and knitting and never leaving your dorm room. So that's a lot of what I did um, my freshman and sophomore year of college. In fact, to the detriment of a lot of my classes, I actually never graduated because I spent so much time in my room on Ravelry and knitting instead. And Ravelry had just kind of gotten started and I was in school for fine arts for painting and with a minor in art history and philosophy. And I thought maybe I'll be an art history professor or if I'm really lucky, I could be a professional painter. And I had started doing the knitting on the side again as just, um, something to do with my hands when I was in my dorm. My roommate loved to watch Gilmore Girls reruns. So we would just sit and watch Gilmore Girls over and over and I would knit to like cope. And- um, To cope with, with Iowa weather? With the weather, with Gilmore Girls, with all of the things, with college, you know. Um, well, I can't stop laughing because I grew up in central Iowa. I mean, like I grew up exactly where you were. So. <laughs> yes. So cold. So cold. Unbelievably cold. If you've never been the type of cold in your life where you walk outside and the inside of your face freezes, then you've never, you've just never been cold. You've just never really been cold. Oh, this is so funny. I think, I think we get used to it in a way. I mean, like I always feel very cold 
when everyone around me does not. But like, yeah, I feel like too, you know, I grew up on a farm in central Iowa and you know, if you don't have the trees, there's no windbreak. Oh, it's so, so cold. Yeah. Yeah. No, you I can't even like be outside it. ever because the wind is just so strong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's knitting weather. It's perfect for never going outside again and just knitting until spring because it's so brutal. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a lot of, a lot of what I did and Ravelry was just kind of getting started and there were a lot of groups sort of forming. There was a, um, groups for all the kind of like hot yarns of the mid 2000s <laughs> and um, Malabrigo had their group you know on there and it was a fan club group run by just knitters who loved Malabrigo yarn and I had recently purchased my first skein of Malabrigo yarn and I was working through a project and I was like this yarn's amazing so I was like I wonder if there's a group on Ravelry so I joined the group and kind of inserted myself um, as I typically do to getting to know people, spending a lot of time in the forum, chatting, uh, offering to volunteer, moderate things when they needed to. They ran a lot of uh, events and so they always needed volunteer moderators and it wasn't run by the company, it was just fans of the club. And at some point Malabrigo kind of noticed this group was growing really quickly and the guy who was in charge of it his name was rich he was sort of busy with other things so he asked me if i would like to admin the group and so i started adminning the group which was just learning the back end of ravelry when it first started basically like all of the little admin tools on the back end of the forums so that was a new thing that i had to learn but it wasn't particularly hard um And as I started doing that, I had direct contact with the guys who were running Malabrigo Yarn. So Tobias um, Fetter and his brother Marcos Fetter and then Antonio um, Gonzalez Arno, who is like the main color dyer down there. I had, I was emailing back and forth and they were saying things like, oh, we want to test out a new yarn and see if, see if the junkies, the Malabrigo junkies like it you know, or we want the junkies to vote on this color. Can you have the junkies do this or that? So I became this sort of liaison go between. And around that time, I was saying to myself, like, what am I doing going to school for fine arts? I just didn't see a long-term career for myself there. I was concerned about the amount of debt that I was taking out to go to private school. So I thought maybe I should just transfer to another school. Um, There's a school near Des Moines in Ames, Iowa called Iowa State University. And I was like, okay, I will go there for fashion design because I love this knitting stuff. And maybe I could like be a knitwear designer or something. So I get there and I really have gotten into my head that I'm gonna go to school and I'm gonna get the degree. And then I'm gonna design knitting patterns, but also have a fashion line. And I get into the classes and kind of discover that that's not really what they're looking for or to train people for at all at that particular school. And that's not really what they're doing. And there aren't that many people or there weren't at the time who were crossover. Like you were either in fashion and you were a knitwear designer for fashion or you were in hobby and you were a knitwear designer for hobby. And there really wasn't too much overlap at the time that I knew about anyway. That's just like 2008, 2007. I think Julie Weisengarber of Coconuts, um, she was a fashion designer who crossed over. I don't know if she was, she was definitely designing at this time, but I don't know if she had released a lot of things or she was already going around and doing classes, but I didn't know about it. So my teachers were basically like, there's no, there's nothing for you. There's no path for you here to lead to what you want. And I was talking to Malabrigo and They were talking about how maybe you could find an internship somewhere that would give you the experience that you want and we could like help you go in that direction. And so I just reached out to Malabrigo and I said, hey, have you guys ever thought about having an intern over the summer? And they wrote back and they said, no, we have never thought about having an intern. Tell us more. And so I kind of pitched this idea that I would come down there and um, do stuff. I wasn't really sure what the stuff would be. I was 
kind of doing blog posts for them as like a side, just like a side fun thing. And I knew the community really well. So I guess they figured we'll figure out something for her to do. So they had me down for an internship and I lived in Uruguay for two months and got to work behind the scenes at the mill and all this really cool stuff down there. That was kind of the beginning, I guess. Wow. Okay. So then what's, what's the next step? What, where'd you mm. go from there? Because you've got your hand in all the pots and I want to know about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So while I was at Malabrigo, um, definitely blogging was becoming this, this big thing. Blogging was on the rise. It was kind of the height of blogging uh, was coming up. I think in 2013 was like the top of blogging. So everybody wanted blogs written. Everyone wanted newsletters. And nobody knew how to do it in the yarn industry. It's at the time, it was kind of an industry where people have been doing the same thing that they already knew how to do for a really long time. And they were just innovating what they already knew how to do. So learning all of these new kind of like computer things was just another thing that they would have to learn. And I already kind of had begun doing that for Malabrico. And so People started asking Malabrigo, like, who's doing your newsletters? Who's doing your blogs? They were very generous um, because they knew that they couldn't hire me full time. And they knew that I would just want to keep doing more. So they kind of like word of mouth shared my information around. And so I got different clients and I started building this little portfolio of people that I was doing newsletters for, yarn shop. Um, a couple different yarn companies for a while. And eventually I moved on from Malabrigo. I had worked on two publications with them and they had let me do some styling and um, coordination for those. So I got a little bit of that experience there, you know, hiring the designers and coordinating all of their timelines for Malabrigo for these books. And so I kind of had built up this little repertoire of skills that included um, making your project happen and telling people about it. And as social media started to kind of come onto the scene, I learned that as well. I just saw that that was gonna be something that um, everybody was gonna use. And obviously I was in college, so I got Facebook because that's what you did. When you're in college, you got Facebook. <laughs> it was brand new, everyone wanted to be on it. Um, so old. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm like, oh my gosh, back in the old Facebook days. And so, um, yeah, I just kind of learned things as they, as they came up. And over time, I became a little more specialized, more selective about what types of projects I wanted to do or take on just because there's not necessarily a lot of um, sustainable work in certain categories compared to other categories in the industry. For example, um, everybody wants, everybody wants to be the blogger, the tastemaker, the person who's designing, the person who's, you know, hand painting the yarn. And you really can only have one head chef, one lead chef, per brand. Sometimes you can have a good team, um, but it's really hard to have too many, you know, too many cooks in the kitchen in terms of creative work. And so if you've already got your creative person and they have the vision of what their brand is going to be, the last thing that they need is someone to come in and tell them how to change everything or ask them to do this, that, or the other. Sometimes what a company really needs is for you to just come in and perform a service that has consistency. And people will pay you for that. They will pay you for um, consistency and responsibility and being reliable uh, where they don't necessarily have the budget to pay for additional creative work. You know, creative people will always pick up whatever's easiest around them to you know, conglomerate into their skill sets. So things like graphic design or layout or label design, um, especially are kind of something that usually these creative lead people take on. And so I kind of said to myself, you know, I can do all of those things. It's not a problem, but for a while, maybe I should just do these other things that people need. 
And so I did that probably for the first seven, seven years of my career was just work, work on other people's stuff. Doing stuff for other people. So then that means that you were primarily doing kind of more like admin work. Is that, would that be right? Um, yeah, I would call some of it admin work. Now I would say that I was probably just doing a lot of different, just wearing a lot of different hats. So I would handle um, brainstorming sessions with whoever the creative lead of the company is, sitting and doing a brainstorming session, taking down notes, and then taking those notes back and kind of refining them into a strategy. That's always something that's really helpful and needed. Um, that strategy might be a marketing strategy in terms of, you know, we have this much ad spend and we're going to put that money here. And here's our plan for pursuing um, this audience via this platform and this audience via this platform. And here's our newsletter schedule. You know, a lot of that implementation stuff tends to be where creative people fall apart. I mean, I know it because I am it <laughs> in the sense but, you know, when I'm doing my own project, it's like, oh, the ideas, I've got lots of those. But then you get in that implementation part and that's a lot harder. That's brass tacks and organization and knowing which step comes first. Mm. So lots of that kind of work. Um, sometimes content creation for social media or coming up with a campaign in a sense. Uh, Occasionally you do get a job where you get to inject new ideas into something that maybe the person who's created is a little bored with it or they can't figure out how to sell it in a new way. So you get to come in and kind of play ad agency for a little bit, mm -hmm. um, which is always a fun project. Or organizing, just organizing collaborations, cross promotion, design coordination and um those sorts of back and forth emails between the person putting together the project and all the designers who are being hired. I've been asked to do booth design a few times. I've done booth design for some major shows. Um, I think out of all the booth designs that I've done, I think I've done four or five booth designs. I've been paid, been paid for four or five booth designs. And out of all of them, I think only one was ever used. So I don't know what that means about my booth design career. <laughs> so then, okay, then how long do you feel like you have been doing stuff more as a creative rather than kind of as the support team? Um, like a year. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so when I, when I wrote the first book, while I was writing slow knitting, um, I was also working as the lead creative. So I've been a creative director. I guess I should, I should backpedal on that and say that I've been in a creative forward role probably for the last four, four or five years ish. But sometimes even if you're the main creative person, you're not necessarily in charge of the creative vision, if that makes sense. So you might be told like very specific parameters and then your job is to be creative within those parameters, within the voice of the brand, within the role of the company that you've been hired for. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you get to put your own stamp on it as much as you would like. Mm. So working with yarn subscription companies is a lot like that because as a, as a brand, you build a voice that has to fill a very specific role. Yarn subscriptions, at least the ones that I've worked for, um, which would be, uh, I was a founding staff member of Yarnbox in 2013 to 2015, and then I left to write my book. And then in 2016, I was hired by Knit Crate, and I worked for them for three years before stepping down um, from the creative chief, chief creative officer position there. Um, and both, both of those, I would say in terms of fashion, we would call them bridge brands in the sense that they form a bridge between the customer who's at the big box store, Hobby Lobby, Michaels, Walmart, and the customer who's at the yarn store, um, who's more familiar with paying a little bit more per skein, 
for their yarn. Maybe they're used to paying a lot more per skein for their yarn. So you have to have this bridge area and yarn subscriptions have done a really good job of filling that role. And while I love, I love the customer in that bridge area because they're learning, they're excited, they're engaged, they wanna try new things. Um, the mission of a yarn subscription is to get you to buy something every month. And while I was there, I just sort of had this discordance in my soul about selling people things every month, mm -hmm. um, encouraging more consumption. And it was at war with the books that I was writing. So while those were definitely creative roles, I didn't feel that I was being my full creative self within them, the same way as working on my own books or my own publications is, or working on stuff for my own brand. Um, so I, I really leaned into my personal stuff, I would say over the last year, year and a half, two years. Okay. So then what does like a day to day, oh no, not day to day, just what, what are you involved in currently? Cause I know that also still is quite a bit of things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, independently, I run my own website, which is hannahfison.com. And that's where I kind of talk about my books or I might share blog posts um, about different jobs in the yarn industry or yarns that are under a certain threshold. I have a directory there of slow knitting yarns, yarns that kind of match my personal uh, philosophy about what makes great yarn that's made well. Um, so that's sort of my brand and where I'm dedicating some, some more energy this year than I have been previously. I just, you know, you got to work the job too. <laughs> and right. so um, I have been production editor of By Hand Serial for about, I've been production editor for about two or three years. And before that, I was the marketing coordinator. Um, and a production editor kind of like handles all of the nitty gritty of each issue, you know, hiring all the designers, determining the overall cohesiveness of the visual collection, laying it all out in spreadsheets, making sure everyone's paid on time. So that was sort of, that's been my work with by hand. And that involves a lot of travel, which is great. Um, but because I have to be able to travel, I can't really take a solid, you know, nine to five. So I sort of fill in little bits and pieces from different contract work. Um, right now I'm doing a natural dye blog series for Nomad, which is a undyed yarn company out of California. And I have some contract work doing layout, layout design for a couple clients. So I keep myself pretty busy. I'm also working on launching a fairly large new project with um, my friend Julie Robinson, who's a very talented tech editor and fashion designer who has made the crossover into the knitting space and she's great to work with. So I've got a full plate. I can't seem to not have a full plate. <laughs> I've tried. It just never happens. <laughs> oh, I get such a kick out of that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I just feel like what happens to me is I, um, if I'm not doing just under max capacity for myself, then I don't get anything done at all. Mm. Sure. It's, yeah, it's like a feast or famine thing. I have to I have to work as much as I can work or I won't get anything done at all. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's not always a bad thing, but not always a good thing either. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's working for now. Is it sustainable? Probably not. <laughs> yeah, well. I mean, it is, it is definitely very interesting because you are in a really unique position and have been, I mean, the entirety of your career, to be honest, in that you've gotten really to try almost a little bit of everything in some ways. Oh yeah. Um, in the, in the fiber arts industry, which, uh, you don't, I don't know. I don't know if I know anybody that's been quite as versatile and varied in their experience as you have. 
I've been really lucky to, to be offered things that I think, um, I was very lucky to have relationships very early on mm -hmm. with a lot of people who knew a lot of other people. And so really, I would say a lot of that is just relationship based. It was basically like one of those things where, uh, you know, one of my clients would be at a show and they would run into one of their friends who runs a different yarn company. And that person would mention that they're having trouble with their newsletters and, you know, your newsletters look so great. And then they'd be like, oh, well, we have a girl. <laughs> and then they would get me, get my name out, you know? And uh, I just got really lucky that the people that I had built early relationships with were generous with information to other people, mm -hmm. generous to me with their knowledge and time. Everyone that I've worked for and with, I definitely learned something along the way. Sure. Um, for a while, I worked for Anne Hansen of Bare Naked Wools, and she's just like an incredible designer. And she knows so many things, like very technical things and very creative things and construction elements and how different wools behave. And she's a fantastic spinner and her house is beautiful and her husband renovates everything. I mean, she's just like this magical being <laughs> of a knitwear designer. And, and she really, you know, let me kind of do some cool things within her brand and help her on some really neat projects and got me away from laying things out in PowerPoint and made me start using InDesign, which was a huge, <laughs> huge leap for me. Um, I knew how to use Illustrator vaguely from school, but InDesign was not a product I had touched. Now I use it almost every day. Yeah. Um, so I think a lot of it, a lot of the variation and you know, different things I've gotten to taste or try has to do with a willingness to learn new things, um, but also from being around really generous people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I want, I mean, I have a lot of different things that I kind of want to cover and I don't really have a linear okay. way to cover them. So um, okay. the, the one thing that, that I'm curious about is that how do you see things as being different in the fiber arts industry and the yarn industry overall now versus when you first started? Like, what are some of the big differences? Big differences. Um, for one, there's a lot more people, like a lot more people involved and looking for work and wanting to work in the industry. I think the internet has sort of opened it up a little bit more so that uh, people can see what what's behind the scenes at yarn companies, what jobs are available. They can be, you know, they can go, go out for jobs. They could go and work for a dyer or a lot of the companies too have grown so much. You know, when, when I started, there were really just a handful of fairly mid-sized to large companies. And then a few indie dyers, maybe like five or 10 or 20 <laughs> And now there's hundreds, hundreds of dyers and hundreds of designers and thousands of thousands of new people joining everything every day and putting out new patterns. And you've got this whole culture that has popped up a whole new knitting culture that's popped up on every social media. I mean, there's knitting on TikTok culture, there's YouTube knitting culture, there's Instagram knitting culture and they're all these individual cells and they're huge amounts of people who only encounter that knitting world and they've never heard of interweave knits and they've never heard of Ravelry yeah and when I started it was it was basically like here are the people who are doing the things you know here's a list and you can work for these people you know that's what's available so the variety, the vastness of our industry, we've grown so drastically, but also in a very uh, unique way, because rather than growing, you know, in a straight trajectory, it feels like branches have appeared quite suddenly. And I had to let go of, I had to let go of a lot of issues that I had with people not knowing knitting history or feeling like they had invented something that had already been invented by like six people already. Mm -hmm. You know, I had to let go of that sort of judgmental viewpoint as part of the industry changing. And I actually feel like it's, it's better 
in a lot of ways, there's more room than there ever was. Um, and more excitement for, for new voices, new faces, new perspectives. It's less about, did you create the most creative pattern? You know, did you innovate something new? And a little bit more about like, are you saying it in a new way? Are you excited about it in a way that energizes other people? And I think that's great. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So uh, then being that there are so many more people and mm -hmm. that there is a lot more of this expansion in the knitting world, I guess, you know, one thing that I encounter a lot and you encounter a lot are people who come into the space, they pick up the skill of knitting, uh, crocheting, designing, kind of, kind of start to follow that, that trajectory. And then it becomes like, how do I find my place in this industry? And I'm really curious, just kind of what your experiences have, have been as far as like having those kinds of conversations or what challenges do you see for people who are kind of wanting to make a mark in the industry when there's so many people? I know it's kind of a big question, but um, yeah. I'm, I'm very curious to hear what you, um, what you think really overall. Yeah. I mean, it's not an easy question. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, you know, what I would, what I would say this, what I have said to other people is find your niche, define your experience, the experience that you're giving to your customer or why, you know, find your why. Why are you designing? Why do you need to be a designer? If the answer is because you think that you can make money doing it, then you need to evaluate the, like actually what that looks like. How, how many people are you competing with? How much money are you hoping to make? And also what are you offering that's different? I think that there's this desire for a lot of knitters when they get started, they learn all of the basic stuff and then they learn how to make a few things. And then they're like, I wanna make my own things. And because so many people are designing and are writing down their patterns, I think that there's pressure to just become a designer once you know how to make your own things. But for me, a lot of the joy in knitting is knowing that I can make something from scratch exactly how I want. And if I want to, I can make it one time and it will fit great. I don't have to write that down. Right. You know, I don't have to share it with, with the entire world. And I think that there are a lot of people who fall into this pressure trap if they feel like they should, or they share the picture on Instagram and people say, is there a pattern? Is there a pattern? And it's okay to say, no, there's no pattern. Right. <laughs> I'm not yeah. doing it. So if you're doing, if you're becoming a designer because you feel like you're a very talented knitter and people are asking for patterns and you think that you want you have like a unique viewpoint and a unique vision. And this applies to any, any category, you know, design, but also dyeing um, would be a big one for me. The, if you think that you really are truly individual, unique, interesting, doing something different, then of course, you know, jump into it with, with both feet. But if you feel that you aren't sure about any of those elements, like you don't know what direction you want to go or then don't quit your day job quite yet because it's a really hard, this is not an easy place to hack it if you wanna do it a very specific way. I decided really early on that there, were, there wasn't really room when I was starting for me to just become a designer. It was something that I think I felt that I had to have more of a name behind me first and then I saw a lot of people come up and they did it the totally opposite way. You know, they did all the design and now they're doing a bunch of other stuff, books and, and work with big companies and that kind of thing. So I don't think there's a good prescribed direction in that way, but I, I think you just have to be willing to improvise for this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think too, just because of the, the saturation, I mean, most markets in general are saturated. But yeah. um, I think another thing is 
is really honing in on kind of what makes, especially as a designer, like what makes your designs unique mm-hmm. and like, is there, like, do people actually, like, what do the people want, right? So right. The, there's a continual, you know, issue that I see where people will start designing things because they just want to design something or they, you know, were inspired by something. But the problem is, is that if you don't have the other elements in place, like there's a buyer for that product, you know, like if you don't know that somebody's going to want that design, mm-hmm. um, then you run into a pretty big issue <laughs> because you yeah. have to turn out a pretty high volume of patterns to really make, you know, money. <laughs> yes. Anything at all, really. I mean, I, I have, I don't know how many patterns I have published, not very many. They're pretty, pretty small beans. I mean, I've got the ones in the book and then I've got a few that I did while I was working for other people and a couple independent releases, that kind of thing. And I don't make any money at all off of that. (laughs) You know, none, zero zilch. Um, I think I, one, a good month for me is like 30 bucks. So Mm. not all, not all people who are doing this as their career are making money off of it as designers. And not all of them are making money off of it as teachers. Even if they're going and they're teaching, even if they're designing, that's not necessarily like the key component, right? Right. So I think that it's important for people to identify where their strength is. If your strength is telling a great story, I mean, there's so many brands that have shown how to do that in a fantastic way. And if you're really good at telling a great story and the story that you're going to tell is different than what you see out there, I think people will, will like that and they'll find you and you'll find them, but you have to know what the story is first. Yeah. If you're really good at visual, you know, visual merchandising and your skill is taking great photos or putting colors together and you're a dyer, then that's going to serve you really well. And so you should lean into those elements of your business that you're really successful at and really feel comfortable doing and feel confident with. Mm -hmm. And the other pieces, you kind of have to look at it and say, okay, without the stuff that I'm not good at, is it enough to get me from A to B? You know, what is B and what's the goal? You know, is it $300 in patterns a month or is it, um, you know, 3000 because in knitting, that's a really huge jump. Yeah. Huge, 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 huge. And, um, and I don't know that it's attainable for, you know, 99% of independent designers, even the ones who are writing patterns for magazines or books and getting paid, you know, a pretty good sum for individual patterns. It's just not, it doesn't add up as quickly as you think it would. Yeah. And especially with how many, like you were saying, the saturation level of the market is, it makes it extra difficult. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. And I just, this is, this is kind of a depressing conversation. I know, I know. Please don't be depressed. Like, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just a matter. And the thing that's really interesting is that is some of the stuff that you were talking about previously before we started in on this depressing conversation. Mm-hmm. And it's really focusing in on number one. Uh, what was I going to say? <laughs> <laughs> on um, relationships. Yes. Relationships is huge. Um, being willing to make relationships um, and, or I guess make friends and, build relationships and that is super critical especially when you're wanting to build any form of like audience online which I know that mm-hmm. the majority of people are at this moment in time because you know things are still relatively kind of closed um yeah. so you really have to be willing even as introverts even as you know those of us who don't really love to do that kind of like you know quote-unquote outreach kind of having those relationships in place is going to be really beneficial um because marketing is all about relationships and then 
the other part of that is experience. And this is something that um, I've been having a lot of conversations about as well when people come to me and they say, well, hey, you know, what I do isn't different from, you know, anybody, you know, like literally there are 500 other people that are doing exactly what I'm doing and we're all doing it exactly the same. And, you know, that happens a lot in a lot of industries. So the difference Mm -hmm. is what experience are you providing? And sometimes that experience doesn't necessarily have to mean like a first touch me having a conversation with you experience necessarily, but the experience that you take a person through from discovery to purchase basically and what that looks like either in a passive way or an active way yeah absolutely absolutely and sometimes I think that it was important you know I've been watching do you watch the chef's table on Netflix I've seen a few episodes it was a while ago but yes and no it's really beautiful this really beautiful kind of like documentary series where they visit a different chef you know, every episode and that chef kind of gets really deep into their process. And almost every chef I've noticed follows a very similar pattern. Like they start out, they know that they want it. They know that they want to do something with food and they're really excited about um, being a chef, doing something with food. And so they get a job in a kitchen and the kitchen that they get a job in maybe isn't their goal, you know? And they work their way up in that kitchen and they move to the next one and they move to the next one. And then they get into a kitchen finally where they're given some freedom and they're kind of at the top. And that's the first chance they get to really flex their creativity individually because everything up until that point has been supporting someone else's vision. But Mm -hmm. it's also been about learning how to get to be the head chef. And I really feel that looking at my career you know, I spent the first decade learning how to be the head chef. And I made a lot of mistakes, even working under great head chefs. You know, there were times that I worked, I felt that I was working hard, but I was a pretty bad sous chef, you know, and there has to be room for you to make mistakes while you learn, which means that other people have to give you opportunities. So I do think that it's it's really important to take, take opportunities, even if you don't necessarily think that that's what you want to do forever. Um, I think a lot of people come into this and like, this is my dream career and I'm going to start it and do it exactly the way that I want from day one. And yes, if you, if you want it to be a hobby job or an entrepreneurial job until it gets going, but if you want to work and you want to have sustaining work and you want to build those relationships, you're going to have to work for and with other people, mm-hmm. either as someone, you know, sending designs into a magazine or a publication to learn how that works, to learn how to be good at submitting things, to learn how to write a pattern that someone else is going to look at and read. Um, or it might mean that you don't design for the first couple of years and instead you work for someone who does design work and you lay out their patterns or you manage their social media. And in return, you get to see their process and how they've learned how to get to where they are. And you can take those things and adapt them. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So then I kind of wanna piggyback off of that a little bit or to keep along yeah. with those veins. So when, let's say that somebody is kind of newer coming to the industry and they kind of want to start that process of submitting or reaching out for collaborations or reaching out to other people to basically see if they can support them in any way. I mean, do you have any, do you have any tips for kind of starting that process at all? Yeah. I mean, the first, the first thing would be to join a professional group. So there are a few different professional groups that overlap with the yarn industry. We used to have kind of our own um, trade show every year called the National Needlework Association Trade Show, but I think that it has dissolved. Now we have CIA, which is the Craft Industry Alliance, I think, and they seem to be filling kind of a lot of those needs, connecting people up with each other. 
There are also several um, kind of classified ads boards on Ravelry for various types of work. So there's a designer, you know, designer board, indie designer board where people will post design calls. There's a classified ads or Ravelers in search of work board. There's a few of these different job posting areas on Ravelry that I think are worth checking out if you're looking for a job that will help you learn and grow. Now, if you're looking for submission opportunities, then I would say look at your overall style and first look at companies that match your overall style. You know, if I am all about neon colors, then Brooklyn Tweed is probably not going to love any of my neon color designs. That's just not their vibe. So look for companies that are on the same visual, you know, vibe that you're selling, the goal of what you're making um, to express what you're doing, and then see if they have any openings. Sometimes they'll have openings for designs that they need to have submitted for them. So a lot of yarn companies will buy ad placement in magazines, and then sometimes they want to promote a new design there, or you can reach out to companies that already have, you know, regular design calls and get on their design call list. All the magazines have design call lists. Most of the bigger companies will have design call lists, or at least they'll have somebody who's writing down names and reaching out to people. I think that subscription boxes are a great opportunity for newer designers to get their names out to a lot of people and all the ones that I know of pay pay the designers so all the work that I'm talking about is paid work none of it is working for free so you know I'm not saying anyone should go out and take an internship where they don't get paid at all I've um, done a few things that were for free throughout my career and I can't say that they gave me any more benefit than the things that I was paid for. Mm. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, just really hitting the pavement. And unfortunately, it's a um, it's a game a little bit of of who you know and who connect connect with. When TNNA was around, there was a physical show floor. You know, I could go to a physical show and go around and talk to all of these different vendors and get to know people on a personal level and have coffee dates with some companies or cocktail hour with other companies or reps or you know leads or whatever and now that's not really a possibility so that's made it a lot harder to kind of coordinate this sort of relationship building but in other ways it's easier because if you see someone whose work you really admire you can just send them a dm <laughs> You know, you can just start mm. interacting with their content on whatever platform that you found them on yeah. and over time build that relationship. And maybe that person will think of you when they see something come up that that's a good fit for what you do. Yeah. Yeah. I do that a lot. That's great advice. And, and it's, you know, that's something that social media has given us. That's amazing is that you know, there's a lot of barriers that are removed between people, especially people that we would like not necessarily feel are within our reach. There's very few people, I think, that are big enough in yarn that they just wouldn't answer at all, you know, and if they don't answer, it's probably because they either don't manage their own social media or they have just too many messages to get to all of them. I think that there's very, very few people who are kind of even at the very top of their game, you know, really making it in whatever category within the yarn industry who would never read your email or never apply to it. And I'm not sure I could name them, you know, it's pretty easy to reach out to people and, and connect with them and get to know them within the framework of knitting and yarn sure. or crochet, weaving spending really all of our fiber artist um, category is pretty open and friendly and accessible, even at the highest level, like our knitting celebrities are still relatively small celebrities. Yeah, yeah, just because like, you know, that I would think like, even though the industry is expansive, it's not like, 
huge, you know, it's still, it's still kind of a niche. So, um, definitely people who work, work within it, it's a much smaller group than the people who knit or crochet or weave. I mean, the group is like astronomically smaller Now it's gotten bigger, but I would say for the most part, um, you know, the designers or dyers or creative directors who are kind of at, at the top of the magazines now, um, run their own companies. The people that you really think of is like, oh, these are people who are powerhouses. If you were to ask them about their business trajectory, their um, work trajectory, it would probably be really similar to mine. And I think a lot of those people got to where they are by building connections and just kind of um, moving around in a path that eventually led to what they wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, friends, I'm so sorry to have to stop the interview kind of right in the middle of it, but this is where we're going to end for today. Um, I am going to try to get the show notes up as soon as possible. Uh, to be honest, there is a lot covered here. So there's a lot of links that will have to be added and it may be an ongoing process. So please have patience with me. Um, again, next week, we will continue on uh, with Hannah. But in the meantime, if you do want to follow her on Instagram, she is at Hannah Bell Knits. So Hannah B E. LLE knits. Um, and I know next time she's going to give us a little bit more information about like other places that you can connect with her, but that's just to give you something to do so in the meantime. And, um, the other thing too, I know I've said it before, but I would so appreciate it if you could at least share this podcast with somebody who may benefit from listening to it, whether that's on social media or just privately from you to another friend who's a business owner. Additionally, it does help so much if you're willing to leave a review on iTunes. Just helps get this podcast out to more people. And I am getting enough feedback back from it that I do think it would be really beneficial to to help more business owners. So that would be so appreciated and and helpful if you would be willing to do that. And I, in the meantime, will talk to you next week.